All right, we are going to continue in Ephesians 2 tonight, and we're going to focus on verses 17 through 22, but I want to start reading and back up just a few verses into last week to verse 13, just to give us context for what Paul is saying here. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then in verse 17, he writes this, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, to the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near to the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Back in 2009, uh, our growing family moved out of the first home we had ever bought in College Station and we bought an old, a big old house in Bryan. A lot of you have been in that house. The house was built in 1953. The same family who had lived there since sometimes, sometime in the 60s uh, is who we bought it from. And so it had been, uh, the best way to say is it had been uh, not destroyed with college students living in it, but certainly not updated in many, many, many years. And so we bought it with the understanding, I'll give you just a, a little peek here into, this is one of the first pictures I ever took the first time I walked in the house. Um, and uh, that's blue shag carpet that had been there for decades. I don't know how long, but for a long time. So we bought it with the understanding that it was going to take a lot of work. And this was an intimidating proposition for me because I am what you call Arkansas handy. And what I mean by that is I'm the son of a preacher who was raised very like legit poor on a chicken farm in Arkansas. And so learning how to fix things was learning how to fix things with no money and no one to hire. You just kind of cobble it together however you can. That's how I learned how to be handy. And so I might find a way, but it's probably not the right way. It's definitely not the professional way. So walking into a house like this with a list of here are all the things we want to do to it uh, was daunting to me. My wife was raised by people who literally built their own three-story house while they lived in it. Um, and so she was like, oh yeah, my parents did this. We can just uh, da da da, you know, and I'm like, uh, it was sweet that your dad gave me a hammer in a toolbox, but it wasn't magic. They didn't suddenly make me into Tom McRae and have the ability to do all of these things. And so um, we lived in that house from 2009 to 2016. And well, I'll just say up front that it was a very, very partial restoration project that we did. Uh, we did most of it ourselves or going out and finding what inexpensive people we could hire to like put down tile because we didn't have the tools or the ability to do this. This is before Buck the Builder days. Pretty sure we had Buck the college student 
in 2009 or somewhere real close to that, because I know a couple of years after this, Renee sat in that living room talking about this guy she met. Um, so I didn't have access to that. And so we just kind of went through it. And one of the first things we did, some of you did this with us, was we pulled up that carpet, which ran through most of the house, some version, there were different colors of carpet, um, including into a bathroom that had tile. The bathroom was, the tile was perfectly fine, but there was carpet over the tile in the bathroom. But what we discovered under uh, this carpet were original old oak floors. And that carpet had been there as long as the woman who we bought the house from, who was my mother's age, who was raised in the house, moved into it in the 60s when she was a kid. The carpet had been there as long as she could remember. And so those old oak floors had been covered up all of that time. We never had the money to completely restore those. But the first thing we did was go in and pull all this carpet up. Underneath the carpet were two different kinds of carpet pads. One of them, what I was told was a horsehair pad, and I didn't really want to know more than that. Um, but those pads had been alternately glued, stapled, and nailed to the wood floor. Uh, so when we started trying to pull up those pads, there were glue stains on the floor. Um, and then there were, I am not exaggerating, thousands and thousands of tacks and nails. Some of you know because you sat in the dark because there was no overhead light in that room But when we bought it. Um, you sat in the dark with us and had fun conversations with my mother-in-law, pulling up one after another after another nail or tack, right? So in the seven years that we lived in that house, we worked to restore it, to rebuild it, to make it into our home. So I'm gonna show you some before and after. Please don't, please don't be impressed. I had the least to do with what you're going to see of anybody in the equation. Michelle Du had a lot to do with the after pictures because these are the, the staged pictures for when we sold the house, right? So we didn't even live in it like what you're gonna see. But this is the front room that turned into that with some paint and pulling up, you can see the floors there, not completely refinished, but a heck of a lot better than the blue shag. Um, and there's just so you can see again, a broader view of that room, which changed and opened up a lot. Uh, the same room from the opposite direction. This is uh, the back room, uh, sort of the den area which became that with some tile and paint and lots of other things that we did. Uh, same room from the other way. You're starting to get the idea. This was the master bedroom also with the blue shag, um, which looked like that. We never, <laughs> we lived in it for the like week it was on the market <laughs> like that. Um, and the kitchen. And then this is the apartment uh, which Juliet once lived in. Uh, and what it looked like. I don't even know if she got this full version of this. I don't remember the pace at which this happened. But lots of changes over the time that we were here. Um, and one of the things that I'm interested to watch in our culture is just how obsessed we are with stuff like this, with restoration projects. Um, there are whole TV channels dedicated just to showing you, I feel silly showing you ours because you can go home tonight and watch in on end on end on end show after show after show of far more impressive reboots than this, right? We have TV shows, magazines, whole industries. We have a couple in Waco who's like great, 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 great grandkids will never have to work a day in their lives. 
because they're good at this and it's in Waco. Have you thought about this? Have you been to Waco? Has nothing to do with where they are. It has to do with an obsession with someone intriguing and interesting doing this kind of work, right? In fact, I walk, I'm not making this up. I walked in right before church. I walked down that aisle and there's a five free issues of HGTV magazine, whatever that means, a TV channel with a magazine about home remodeling. So if you want subscription to that, I'm gonna leave that right there. Five free issues. It's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. It's literally on the floor when I walk into church to preach about it, this obsession that we have with restoration projects. And I think somewhere deep down, not to over-spiritualize everything, but somewhere deep down, it's because this is the story that we crave. We, we crave the rebuilding of something that's old, that's run down, that's broken, that someone has deemed useless, maybe even condemned into something that's now beautiful and something that is full of purpose. And I think that's the story that Paul is telling us here in these, verse, these verses in Ephesians 2. I want to read just those last several verses from the voice translation, because I love the way that it phrases this. It says, the great preacher of peace and love came for you and his voice found those of you who were near and those of you who were far away. By him, both have access to the father in one spirit. And so you are no longer called outcasts and wanderers, but citizens with God's people. And not just citizens, Paul takes it a step further, members of God's holy family and residents of his household. You are being built on a solid foundation, the message of the prophets and the voices of God's chosen emissaries with Jesus, the anointed himself, the precious cornerstone. The building is joined together, stone by stone, all of us chosen and sealed in him, rising up to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together, creating a sacred dwelling place among you where God can live in the spirit." Here's what Paul is saying, just in a few summary statements, what he's saying, I think, in this text. He is saying, first of all, we were cut off from God. There was a time when we were separated from him, and now we're near to him. He's also saying we were at odds. We weren't just apart from God, but we were in the way that our hearts were positioned, in the way that we were living our lives. We were at odds with God and with one another, and now we're at peace with him and members of the same family. The, the, the sort of extravagance of language here about this particular change occurs throughout the scriptures. In Ephesians 1, which Scott preached several weeks ago, Paul says, he destined us to be adopted as his children through the covenant Jesus the anointed inaugurated in his sacrificial life. This was his pleasure and his will for us. Though we were his enemies, it was his pleasure and his wills for, will for us to be together adopted as his children. And in Galatians 3, Paul writes, it's your faith in the anointed Jesus that makes all of you children of God. Two things are happening here, like we talked about last week. We're being reconciled to God and we're being reconciled to each other. And together we are being reconciled to God as his church, even though we were opposing him, even though we were his enemies. And then third, we were scattered without purpose. And now we're joined together 
as God's holy dwelling place. We were these random pieces of wood and bricks and things that didn't seem to have a purpose and certainly weren't pointing anyone to God. And God is taking us all and putting us together and out of that scattered, purposeless mess, building his holy dwelling place is what Paul says. In fact, if you kind of follow the theme in the scriptures, uh, there's an allusion here to the fact that God's dwelling place was once a building. It was once an actual temple. That temple is gone. That temple has, tor- has been torn down. And now here's the restoration project, not God putting that physical building back together, but taking the scattered lives of his children who he intends to adopt and pulling them together and taking what the scriptures say, the the, the stone that the builders rejected, taking that stone and making it the cornerstone, Jesus, and then building us all together with him into his dwelling. The message of Ephesians to this point is, is simply this, that God has taken us from broken down and without purpose to restored, to redeemed, to joined together with all the other broken down and purpose, purposeless parts of his great reclamation project, and built us into his temple. That's what Ephesians tells us to this point. And when it says he's building us into his temple, it means he's building us into his place, his place of presence in the world. And through his place of presence, he's going to redeem the world. And I think when we hear that message, that God is sort of reclaiming us and that he's restoring his dwelling place with us. And that through that, he's going to bring that message of peace and that gospel to the world. I think it both excites us. I think we sort of dream of this because we know our own brokenness and uh, we pray, we want to know that something more, some kind of sense is gonna be made out of our brokenness and the brokenness of the world. But I also think when I look at this and I sort of hold it up against the life of our culture and even the life of the church, I think in many ways we're missing this. We're missing the reality that we are truly being reclaimed and he is truly building us into his dwelling place because in order to live that reality, two things have to be true. We have to believe that God is a God who does that, that he actually resurrects things, that he actually brings broken things into wholeness. But we also have to acknowledge our brokenness. We have to acknowledge even to, to buy the whole of what Paul tells us about this, we have to acknowledge even the inevitability of our own deaths because resurrection is only going to come through death. And when Paul describes this ongoing process of God building his temple, he's telling us part of what he's using to build it is the death of of the saints. As your life comes and goes, God will take that, the beginning, the middle, and even the end, and that will be used to build together a dwelling place. And that was true for Jesus too. We're not better than Jesus His death was part of the story and our deaths are in some ways part of the story. I know it's Easter, stay with me. I promise we won't stay here a long time, but we tend to avoid this. We tend to not want to uh, fixate on our own brokenness and certainly not our own deaths. And that's reflected in our culture. That's reflected in the church. Uh, Once upon a time, cemeteries were built as sort of centerpieces in communities. 
Communities were built around cemeteries. They were put in the middle of things on purpose so that people had proximity and access to the place where the people who they loved died were laid to rest. And we had that ongoing reminder that this is our common destiny. It's gonna happen for all of us. Not only was that true in the culture, but it was true in the church. Go look at churches older than 75 to 100 years old, and many of them will have a cemetery sitting right next to it. How many, church, how many churches can you think of who have built new buildings in your lifetime decided, let's be sure to leave space for a cemetery? If I said community church is going to build a building next year, and we want to be sure we leave space for a cemetery, you would all think I'm nuts right? You would. It would sound bizarre. It was totally normal until very, very recently. We have lost sight of that common destiny. And, and in some ways that has furthered us losing sight of our common purpose, of our common connections. Um, and, and I just want to say, however weird it sounds to you, the presence and the proximity of a cemetery only freaks us out if the reality, the power of the resurrection is distant or unreal to us. Because death is only weird or scary if we believe it's the end. If we believe that it's final, which is not what we're told here. We have to pass through death. We have to pass through our own brokenness to really understand and take hold of the power of the resurrection. I saw this great example of uh, the way that we come to grips with this or don't. Um, Back in January, Conan O'Brien, who I'm sure most of you know who Conan is, uh, he's been very successful as a comedian and a talk show host, and he's been in this sort of countercultural career trajectory where he is sort of winding down the things that have been successful, and he took his hour-long show, his own choice, and decided, I want to cut it down to a half hour, I want to simplify, people said he was crazy, can't make as much money that way, you're not on TV, you're on TV half as much, which sounds crazy to everybody who wants to be on TV as much as possible, right? So he did an interview with the New York Times, and this is one of the things he said in that interview. He was asked, is this how you want to go out with a show that gets smaller and smaller until it's gone? And he said, maybe that's okay. I think you have more of a problem with that than I do, talking to the interviewer. At this point in my career, I could go out with a grand 21-gun salute and climb into a rocket and the entire Supreme Court walks out and they jointly press a button. I'm shot up into the air and there's an explosion and it's orange and it spells good night and God love. In this culture... Two years later, it's going to be, who's Conan? This is going to sound grim, but eventually all our graves go unattended. And the interviewer says, you're right, that does sound grim. And Conan says, sorry, Calvin Coolidge was a pretty popular president. I've been to his grave in Vermont. It has the presidential seal on it. Nobody was there. This is how people reacted to this level of honesty from Conan. Uh, I saw it somehow, someone retweeted this, a tweet that said, is Conan O'Brien okay? With a link to this particular segment of the interview, there was a headline that says, Conan O'Brien wants you to know that nothing matters and you're going to die. <laughs> Another headline that says, America's funny man, Conan O'Brien, here to remind us that all our graves go unattended. That's how we respond to that kind of truth, but it's the truth. And it's a truth that's necessary for you to understand the power of Easter. 
Conan is actually channeling Solomon and the writer of Hebrews here. Hebrews 9 tells us, just as it's appointed for, one, for man to die once and after that comes judgment, this is our destiny. God has appointed it. So Solomon writes about uh, our desire that our lives would leave an impact so that generation after generation will remember the significance of who we are. And Conan saying, sooner or later, you can be a popular president with a seal on your grave and your grave is gonna be sitting empty most of the time. Solomon writes it this way, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the most uplifting Easter sermon you've ever heard. But we're in a weird mind game with this because we have a story where real meaning and real life are all wholly dependent on a resurrection. It is not enough for our story of faith, for our story of meaning, for our story of life to end at the cross. They depend on the resurrection and the resurrection requires passing through brokenness and the futility of life and the loss of purpose and even death. But we don't wanna pass through that. <clears throat> we wanna avoid that. But when we try to skip over that, we trap ourselves in that futility. And we tell a story that the world can't believe because we're surrounded by the signs of brokenness and death and decay, the brokenness of the world, and, and even the kind of futility that Solomon and Conan voice here. Josh is going to stand up here in a few minutes and sing to us, do you feel the world is broken? And we're going to say, we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? And we're going to say, we do. Do we? We have to feel it. We have to acknowledge that reality because Paul says we're being built into the sacred dwelling place of God, but that's an ongoing building. He's talking about something that is still happening that is not completed and that the way the ongoing building is happening is that God is pulling stones out of the discard pile, which is us, and he is doing that and putting together until that final resurrection that we'll get into in just a minute. I promise it's coming. But a Christianity that, that, that tries to deny the harder realities leading up to the ultimate resurrection or to just focus on positive and inspiring things or to just try to make it Sunday to Sunday is not only at odds with reality, but it's at odds with the heart of the message of the gospel, which is our meaning and purpose come from resurrection. And resurrection is not ignoring death, but passing through it and letting God defeat it in us, in Jesus and through Jesus, and then in us and through us. So until the final resurrection, these things are part of the story, the brokenness and even death. And there will be plenty of what feels like futility and death to acknowledge. And if, if we try to just assemble little bits of happiness and survival and sunshine, we will be left out of the beauty and the wonder of the first Corinthians 15 day, which is coming. Because what Paul is describing here in Ephesians 2 is a restoration. 
it is a reclamation project. We're not invited to, what, what Paul is doing is not saying, take your Bible and find everything that comes after God created and said it is good and tear it out and pretend it doesn't happen. It's not what Paul is inviting us to do. We're invited to join with the whole of God's family who knows pain, who knows futility, who knows death. We're invited to face even the reality of our own deaths and not accept that futility or even death will have the final word, but watch the miracle of Easter come to life. We're invited to watch a God who can handle our brokenness a God who can handle our lack of purpose, a God who can handle our fear that our lives are not going to matter, and even our physical death, a God who can take all of those things, who can pick them up and say, oh, here's Thad's sinful mess of a life. I can, I can use that. Here's Adam's anxiety and depression. I can use that. Here's Kathy's struggle sometimes with, with insecurity. I can use that. Here's Amy's and Michael's and Marissa's and Emmy's struggle with sickness and pain in their bodies. I'm going to take that and I'm going to build it together with all of the other stuff. And, and, and here is this person's struggle with addiction. And here is this person's struggle with depression. I can use all of that. It's a God who says, here's Conan's wondering if his life in a culture that worships the kind of life he has, here's his wondering if his life really matters. I can use that. It's a God who can even say, here's Brock's abbreviated life that cut short, caused so much pain and confusion for his family and for his friends and for thousands, literally thousands of people. I will take that and it will be built. It's why the psalmist wrote, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, because God is the builder who takes it all and who builds it together on the foundation of Jesus and gives it meaning and purpose. This is a God who says, yes, all of that stuff, these are just the materials I need to put together on the foundation of Jesus and the prophets and apostles. This is exactly what I want to join together one by one and raise up a holy temple and create a sacred dwelling place where I can live in the spirit. This is exactly what I want. All of these broken pieces that someone else discarded and said, that's of no use. There's no beauty there. And we resist reminders of brokenness and death because we don't, want fully, we don't fully believe that God is like that. And so my invitation to you today, if nothing else, is believe that's who God is. Believe that's what he's like. And you have a whole lot less to avoid and fear in life. We struggle and ask, how could he possibly build a dwelling place for himself and one for the renewal of the world, much less out of our mess and even out of our deaths. But Paul tells us very clearly that it's wholly rooted in the real bodily resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes it this way, friends, if the anointed has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is worth less than yesterday's garbage. You are all doomed in your sins and the dearly departed who trusted in his liberation are left decaying in the ground. 
If what we have hoped for in the anointed doesn't take us beyond this life, then we are world-class fools deserving everyone's pity. But the anointed was raised from death's slumber and is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in death. For since death entered this world by a man, it took another man to make the resurrection of the dead our new reality. Look at it this way. Through Adam, all of us die, but through the anointed one, all of us can live again. But this is how it will happen. He explains how it's going to unfold. The anointed's awakening is the first fruits. The actual physical resurrection of Jesus is where it all begins. It will be followed by the resurrection of all those who belong to him at his coming. And then the end will come. After he has conquered his enemies and shut down every rule and authority vying for power, he will hand over the kingdom to God, the father of all that is. And he must reign as king until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last hostile power to be destroyed is death itself. We'll step out of our mortal clothes and slide into immortal bodies, replacing everything that is subject to death with eternal life. And when we are all redressed with bodies that do not, cannot decay, when we put immortality over our mortal frames, then it will be as scripture says, life everlasting has victoriously swallowed death. Hey, death, what happened to your big win? Hey, death, what happened to your sting? Sin came into this world and death's sting followed. Then sin took aim at the law and gained power over those who follow the law. Thank God then for our Lord Jesus, the anointed, the liberating King who brought us victory over the grave. We face the realities of this world, the brokenness, the suffering, the sadness, even death with honesty but we face them with hope because God is not asking us to pretend that those things aren't real. He's inviting us to watch and to participate as he picks them all up and undoes the brokenness and brings his healing and his resurrection power and puts them together to reclaim what is his and to rebuild his dwelling place in this world by putting us and all of our sickness and sadness together in the way that only he can since he has defeated all of those things through the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son. And since he does that, since we are now his holy temple, since we are now the place where God in the spirit dwells, Paul writes this, my dear brothers and sisters, stay firmly planted, be unshakable, do many good works in the name of God and know that all your labor is not for nothing when it is for God. You are not just here to be happy about the resurrection and wait for the end to come. You are here for God to work through you, through us together to usher in the coming age of that full resurrection. This idea, this, this, when we talk about resurrection, it's not just a metaphor. It is the real power of the resurrection of Jesus many, many decades, many, many centuries ago, spilling over In in some ways, Paul says, from the end, when God will make everything sad come untrue, it's the real power of his resurrection spilling from the past and from the future over. It's moving through time into our present. The real power of the resurrection and the coming of Jesus live in us. 
as God by his spirit makes us a dwelling place. The resurrection is not a hope that causes us to stand still. It's a forward looking hope that brings us to life even as we wait that final resurrection and victory. The resurrection is not a parable. It's not an inspirational idea. It is the moment in history when the power of God overcame the power of death. And it is therefore the moment in history when the power of God overcame the power of depression and aging and confusion and sickness and hopelessness and yes, even death in you, in his church. It is the moment in history when the power of God overcame, how do I get through another week at this miserable job or with these kids who I love so much? We're not here just to exist and survive. We are here to experience the real power of the resurrection come to life in us and then watch as God takes that life in us and puts it together with the life in the person sitting on our right and the life in the person sitting on our left to build his dwelling place. And that resurrection of Jesus freed us, freed you to join God's work of building a holy place, a sacred place for him to live and for him to enact the power of the resurrection in this world. Let's pray.